Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Thirsty Thursday, number 32. Uh, and this is the start of our new um, kind of partial series uh, where we're going to we're going to kind of talk about some of the classes that are offered by Strike the Box Training. Uh, so tonight we're doing one of this is one of more of the it's one of the more traditional, um, not traditional, but one of our older programs, uh, the first in first five. So we're talking about the first in arriving, um, whether it's a truck engine whatever it is, um, and, then, and then the first five minutes. So what are our priorities? What do, what do we need to get right from the start? Um, and this is for those, um, you know, the firefighters that are riding the seat, the guys and gals that are looking to promote. Um, so they're like the acting lieutenants, um, that first-line company officer. Um, and even, up, even beyond that, you know, so, you, you know, we can always – um, adjust it to talk about, you know, some command roles. Again, if you're the, you know, you're a battalion chief, assistant chief, you're the shift commander and you're pulling up, what are the first, you know, the first things that you want to consider in those first five minutes um, based on what you, what you have in front of you. So, um, so we're going to give you, like I said, a little glimpse into the first in first five. Um, and we'll kind of, we'll kind of go from there. Trevor, how are you brother? I'm doing well, my brother. How are you doing? I'm uh, kind of dodging raindrops right now. So cheers, cheers my, my friend. friend. Bobby will be joining us uh, eventually. He's with uh, his son, Timmy. Uh, they're doing some uh, Special Olympics training tonight, I believe. Uh, we were working yesterday together, and um, he, had, he had said he's going to be a little late. So um, me personally, I'm excited for this series. Uh, kind of, again, show off what we – what Strike the Box does, some of our, our programs. Uh, me, me coming into the instructing a little late, um, and as, as kind of the COVID pandemic took off, I haven't had the, the opportunity to really come and teach a lot with the guys. Um, but I know Bobby and Trevor have taught this program all over the place. Uh, I think the most recent one was at the Alaska Fire Conference uh, in September of 2019. Uh, we were hoping to go back, but um, financially that – it wasn't an option for us. Um, so, Trevor, you want to tell us a little bit more about first in, first five, and um, you know, kind of what was the what was the impetus to to get this class or to do this? All right, ben, great question, and uh, thanks everybody for tuning in, and glad to be back. And uh, you know, we we've, we've kind of gotten over a little bit of a, a rough hurdle with uh, the 20th anniversary of September 11th. A lot of things that we we've, we've done, we've been through. Of course, we went through the. Uh, also, the anniversary of the deployment to um, New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina. So, you know, we, we've looked at a lot of different things. And, you know, if I reflect back on that, we look at things we did well, things we didn't do well, things we absolutely screwed up, and things we want to do better the next time. So, with the first in, first five, the, the impetus of that, Ben, which is an excellent question, was, okay, let's take all of the calls that we've made over the years and look back at them, not to point a finger, not to play Monday morning quarterback or anything else, but to say, what could we have done better? What did we learn? Because the old fire service adage of, you know, as goes the first line, goes the fire. But those first five minutes are so crucial. And all of us had done excellent jobs on the fire scene. All of us have done okay jobs on the fire scene. All of us have done half-ass jobs on the fire scene. And all of us have, one way or another, we have screwed something up. So first and foremost, let's own that. Uh, and again, this isn't to poke anyone in the eye or say, you know, we're better than you or our patch is shinier than yours or um, you know, all that kind of BS. So what I'm looking at is over the years, 
you know, if if you screwed something up and you owned it, the next day you get to call that experience. That day you're still a screw up, but the next day it should have become experience. And what did you do to correct it? So we're not going to give the uh, high mighty lecture of, you know, leadership and what you should do and, and being a good team boss. I mean, that should be ingrained in you. And we'll get to that in some of our other series. But uh, some of the pictures we'll show you later on. Uh, has, has anybody ever stretched short on a fire? Well, whether you admit it or not, you probably could have done a better job, even if you didn't stretch short. So there's other things. Was your positioning as good? Um, were your tactics as good? So that was really the impetus of this whole thing was to look back at a series of good, bad, and ugly and use them as teachable moments and at all levels, whether you were a firefighter, whether it was something that you either did or didn't do on the fire ground as a company level officer, as a command or instant command level officer, all the way through. So that first five minutes is so crucial. And when Bobby comes on, I certainly want to give him credit for this. One of the uh, teaching points Bobby always uses is that, look, you're probably going to make a mistake on the fire ground. And it's not that you made a mistake. It's how you recover from that mistake. Just like if we pull a cross lay and the previous shift just completely screwed up packing it. Well, we can sit there and shake our fist in the air and yell at C-shift if it was C-shift. We can yell at C-shift and, you know, uh, talk about how much they suck. And, you know, they spend, uh, you know, more, t more time watching YouTube videos. Than they do out doing training. All that aside, what are we going to do on the fire ground when things go from sugar to shit real quick and we, ha we still have to get the job done? So, um, you know, one of the things that we look at over a period of time is the majority of us came up either in direct order operations or SOP-based operations. So, uh, like when I first got in, where, wherever that lieutenant or captain took their radio uh, antenna and pointed it, that's the direction you went in. You followed that order. You completed that order. And then you report it back. Uh, yeah, then we got a little more sophisticated. We did SOP-based operations that the first engine shall do this, the second engine shall do that, first truck, second truck. And that's all well and good, except what happens if there's a delay? What happens if the second truck doesn't arrive in the order that it's supposed to? What happens if, uh, like, go back to uh, probably one of the last fires me, you, and Bobby were on together at, uh, at the Lazy Lizard, that, all right, well, maybe our third new truck wasn't ours it was actually from another department let alone another state so we have all these uh considerations so that's when we've kind of again evolved into more priority based operations which i've taken a little bit of a liking to still like the sop slash sog moo whatever the flavor of the month is that we want to call it but you know what are what are the top priorities and i will say this uh you know the first in first five is something that my department gets regularly whether we call it that or not, but we talk about that you know, being that best one-line fire department that we can possibly be. That's not a indictment or any kind of uh, cut as to abilities, but our bread and butter is getting on the scene, making sure that that you know we've taken care of the life hazard and we get that first line to the seat of the fire as quickly and as, as efficiently as possible. If my folks can do that probably I'd say at least 90% of our problems have gone away and the rest of it's just fine tuning. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a, we had a fire in a uh, multifamily dwelling. It was a fourplex uh, apartment building fire on the first floor, bottom right corner. And we run minimum staffing like most people. And my, uh, my officer on that engine had the forethought to take a different running route. It didn't cost him any time. 
but he took a different running route just so his pump panel would be facing the door where the crew was going in because he knew once that pump was set, he had to be part of the crew. The pump operator had to be part of the crew. And that little bit of forethought was excellent. Um, you know, and within, uh, within two minutes of receiving the alarm, they were on the scene, had a line stretched, and in under four minutes, they were calling back to say that the fire had been knocked and that they were you know, completing the rest of the tasks with the rest, obviously, the rest of the assignment coming in. And they and they put the chief in service too, right? Nah, nah. Well, they, they, <laughs> they kind of know better. They, they can put the chief in service, but he's kind of squirrely and he's going to come in anyway. But uh, no, but they, they did a phenomenal job. And all we did was fine tune to say, okay, hey, guys, what do you think about your positioning? Well, you know, we did it. Hey, you know what? You did an excellent job, but you know, if, if you had pulled forward 15 more feet, you could have gotten another view of the building and, you know, on your 360, when you came in, you saw the Alpha side, the Bravo side, the Delta side, um, or you could have seen the Delta side. The only thing you're missing was the Charlie. So if, if they had pulled 15 more feet, that wasn't uh, a ball busting thing. That was a, man, you know, great job. You know, here, here's something that we can tweak a little bit and do some fine tuning. Um, you know, they, they, they chose to operate off... Um, you off the tank and the water supply was handled, but you know, no one called over the radio to say, Hey, next engine in, pick up our line at the hydrant or next engine in, go ahead and reverse lay to the hydrant at, uh, you know, at, at Claremont notion, not a big deal. Cause the task was taken care of, but the, these guys were telling me what they, what they should have done different. And it wasn't a, a checklist to say, okay, you know, here, here's my, here's my goody people and my bad people. But you know, they did their own self-assessment, and to me, that's what it's all about. Um, so, you know, again, they did an outstanding job, but their first thought was, what can we do the next time? We had to do this all over again. What what will we do again? Exactly the same, no changes. Uh, what will we change, and what were some things that, wow, you know, that's a wake-up call. And fortunately, like I said, they it was fine-tuning. I mean, I, I couldn't have been happier with the outcome of that incident, uh, you know, Everybody was able to reoccupy except for the fire unit. Um, you had primary searches, secondary searches were taken care of. Utilities were controlled. Ventilation was taken care of. The 360 was taken care of. Um, I mean, all the way around, th these guys just hit a home run. You know, so um, that's what I'm getting at with, with that first in, first five, is that it gets to be so natural. And there were some things that didn't go the way they wanted them to, but they were just able to recover and bounce back. And I kind of... Um, yeah, I know I'm conflating a little bit with this, but you look at the uh, you know, SEAL Team 6 when they went into the uh, Bin Laden compound. Things didn't exactly go by the plan. Okay, they, they lost a helicopter, but you know what? They're like, okay, that wasn't part of the plan. Keep going forward. Let's figure this out. And you know, they were mission-oriented. And that's what uh, you know, we need to be. We need to be mission-oriented. If something doesn't go to, to plan, we take a step back. Um, sometimes we don't have a, a lot of time to, to uh, reevaluate. But we just reevaluate and we, we get our mess together. We go to work and we complete the mission. We can, you know, piss and moan and bitch and complain. And, you know, uh, all the keyboard cowboys watching YouTube the next day can get online and, and tear us up if they'd like to. But the bottom line is, you know, firefighters doing what firefighters do, evaluating what, what occurred so they can apply what they learned. You know, end of the day. So, um, you know, kind of going back to what you're asking, Ben is that first in first five looks at the things that you can do prior to that incident even occurring that's going to make you better even prior to arriving on the scene and talking about arriving on the scene look at this it is, there is. Bobby mcgee the man the myth the legend uh, 
Sorry, guys. We got special numbers got held up a little bit. Oh, no worries. How'd it go? How'd how Timmy do tonight? Did great. Actually, very fast. Did a very good job. So. Outstanding. Cloud cover helps. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Bobby, glad to you, interrupt you, buddy. You're, you're not an interruption. We were just talking good stuff about you. Well, actually, we talked bad stuff about you now and good stuff about you for just before you came on. Cheers. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Um, hey, Bobby, I was talking about uh, a few seconds ago. One of the things that you've always tried to impart on people is that it, it's not that you make a mistake on the fire ground or in those first few critical minutes. It's how you recover from it. And, you know, you kind of train not to only to that muscle memory, but you you look at something more mission based than you do specific task base like if you pull uh if you pull a cross leg and it winds up being a, a pile of spaghetti you still got to go forward so um i'm going to throw you right underneath the bus right away uh since since that's something that you definitely believe in um tell us what's in your head on that how, how do you try to impart that on on your crews um it, yeah I, when i was growing up i was like never picked first for sports teams and things like that uh, i just wasn't very athletically adept when i was younger and so uh, when I got in the fire service, I think that was a little bit of a, a, a hiccup for me when I first got started. And so then I learned that through working and training and working and training that I became, you know, better at my craft. Uh, so I think maybe, you know, in my situation, uh, I knew that I had to improve. Um, and I knew that from when I when I came out of school, you know, I played sports and stuff like that, but I was never that that first, the first team guy, you know, I was a JV guy the whole, the whole time through school, basically. So when I got in the fire service and I started um, training and practicing, all of a sudden things started to click. And um, that really kind of made me feel good. And then all of a sudden, you know, you could be competitive with those guys that were natural athletes. You know, the fire service had a lot of natural athletes in it. A lot of guys were the starters on their football teams, their baseball teams, and things like that. You know, that a lot of uh, those those guys were attracted to the fire service. So, you know, what happened was all of a sudden I realized that, wow, I can kind of keep up with these guys. And in some, in some ways, if I train hard enough, I could actually, you know, eclipse them by you know, five or ten seconds on a, on a hose line stretch or something like that, so on and so forth. So I always tell the story about, you know, Cal Ripken. So we live around the Baltimore area, so, you know, Orioles fans all around here. And, uh, you know, Cal Ripken, we always – he's nicknamed the Iron Man, uh, made a bunch of consecutive starts, 21-something. I don't remember, but a tremendous amount of starts. And I remember a story about Cal Ripken where – uh, his fielding percentage was what, like nine nine seven when his career finished, or some crazy number like that. And what Cal would do was, they said that if he missed the ground ball to the left, they said that Cal would show up two hours before regular practice, batting practice, and just have them hit a couple hundred balls to the left. And Cal's saying was, I'm not going to miss a ball to the left again. You know, and that, apparently that was, uh, you know, how Cal ran his baseball career. And I thought about that, as, as, as I said, I wasn't that level A player. And Cal Ripken, you know, wasn't probably as naturally talented as some of the guys he played against. But Cal Ripken put in the work. Uh, he did his thing. And, um, and, and all that work ended up paying off. And I, think he, I think he was almost uh, it was a 280 or 290 lifetime batter. And you, you saw him play, he changed his stances all the time, he changed how he batted. So anyways, that's kind of where I took it from. And then the whole thing about like the hose falling off your shoulders, I think, you know, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. So 
if you train to be really good at not having that happen to you, um, that's what you should train on first. And then you start training for eventualities of having to add a line or take line out. Um, and, and the final thing is like, if you actually drop that, um, you drop that hose load on the ground, how do you grab that couple? You know, how do you make that a short drag load to get there? And so that's, um, that, that's kind of where I came from. Um, that's been kind of my history and things like that. And I've learned that, that even those guys that were the top level athletes, if they don't train and practice and keep up with this stuff, um, they're not going to keep up with it either. So that, that's, it, I hope that answers your question, Trevor, kind of jumping right in here. But yeah, um, that's no, Bobby, it, it, it absolutely did. And um, you know, to that end, it's almost like trying to make your weakness into your strength. And whether it's uh, a true weakness or just something you're not really confident in, we have to be the master of all these different things or you know supposed master and it's just like the folks that'll say oh well you know um the, those ladders we call them ride wells because they ride well on the side of the engine well if you're not confident or, com or comfortable climbing ladders the best thing i can suggest to you is get out there go one rung at a time go to the side of the fire station turn that weakness into a strength if you're not really confident or comfortable with pediatric calls you know, have someone shadow you and mentor you but by all means Put yourself in that position um, that, yeah, you, you might you might fall on your face, and I think that's part of it too. Is you know, we're very reluctant to really run the risk of failing in front of our friends and colleagues. But if they're really our friends and brothers and sisters and colleagues, they're going to pick you up and and try to coach you in the right direction. Um, and I, I see that more often than not, where the majority of it is it is in our own heads, where. We're, we're our own self-limiting factor, and it's okay to make a mistake, especially the the further up the chain that you go. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see people starting to shy away a little bit from the performance-based things, not because they don't have the capability, but they just don't want to be vulnerable or fall down in, in front of their peers. Well, guess what? We're going to. And, again, if they, if they see how, like, someone like you or Ben, hey, look, I just screwed up, but here's how I recovered from it. And you keep going forward and complete the mission. That's to me. That's the uh, emphasis of what we're, we're trying to do. And uh, Ben, I showed you earlier. I sent you some clips out of the uh, first in first five program. You know, I've stretched short on some uh, on some fires before. And you, know, if you make a mistake that day, I mean, you're a screw up. You're only as good as your last call. But if you learn from it and you evaluate what happened you try to apply what you learn the next day you get to call that experience. Um, and then hopefully you take that and, and try to teach with it. And, and I would even say it's not even the next day. I mean, you like, like we've said before, you're only as good as your last call. Well, your next call could be five minutes after you clear the previous one. No. And, and so, Ben, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's just that your shift's not going to let you forget that until the next day. That's so I, I, I want to clarify that one, but you're I, correct. I work with Bobby. He's not going to let me forget it ever. Well, ex exactly. And, and to that point, um, you know, it, again, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to work in a busy enough place, you can you can apply what you learned a lot quicker because you might have a similar enough call that same shift or maybe within that same week. If you're in a slower department and Bobby, this kind of harkens back a little bit and I'll get you taught by that kid again um, to that you know, where if you have slower fire duty or you're not as busy, it might be months to even years before you get to apply what you learn. And that's where that, that bridge of training comes in. And, and Bobby, I, I apologize. I always forget where the, um, 
young man was from. But remember that guy? They, I think they said he had a one house fire in the last 30 years. Would you, would you mind sharing that with us again? Because I just think that's just a, a great story. And I have so much respect for that kid. Yeah, so we were teaching out in Wichita, Kansas, uh, a great place and, and really great training opportunity. Uh, at the time, it was a much smaller uh, training conference. It got really big, and it's really an excellent conference to go to if anyone gets a chance. Uh, but we, I think at the time, Trevor, if I'm right, we had like only 100 students or something like that. It was, it was fairly limited. So it was really kind of a cool thing because we would uh, do our training, and then we would go out. And there was like a, a place called the Pump House out there in Wichita, which is a, a, a nice place to go. And we'd all network. And it was really, those are always good times for firefighters to yeah. network. Right. Whatever you want to call it, Dan. No judgment. <laughs> uh-uh. No judgment, uh, no. So so this we had this 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 younger guy was doing our class, and, and he was just so attentive, and he was so into everything that we were doing, and he was trying to, you know, how does that work? You know, what do you do and things? And he was just very, was just like a student you would always want to have, I guess is the way to put it. I mean, he just, he paid attention. He put in the work. He watched what we were doing. He listened to what we were saying, you know, and all that. And so we were out that night and he talks to me and he's still picking my brain about little things here and little things there. And I said, man, I said, you know, you are really a, you're a great guy. You just, you're trying to figure all this stuff out. And I think it's awesome. And he said, you know, Bobby, he said, I'm from a town called Longton, Kansas. And uh, he said, I, I don't remember how many years he'd been in there or whatever, but I think it was it was more than a few years. And he said, we've never had a dispatch for a call in a structure since I've been here. So I was like, wow. And uh, if you look at a map, look at Longton, Kansas, it's pretty much all by itself. So they had lots of they had more like wildfires and those types of things and so on and so forth. But they had never been called to a structure. And he said, you know what? When we get called to that structure, I want to know what I'm doing. And I just, to me, I thought that because I, I've always worked my career in what would be considered nationally slower places. Um, you know, we're not seeing two or three fires a month. We're seeing maybe two or three fires a year. And so I, mean, I kind of looked at that and thought, well, you know, that's, that's kind of where we all come from. If most of us come from, we're not running four box alarms a day. Um, that's just the very urban, busy urban departments, um, you know, those types of areas. And most of us aren't doing that. That's been me my whole entire career. So, um, you know, that's, I, I really appreciate that. It made me kind of come back a little bit because sometimes, you know, we kind of we downgrade ourselves because we're in slower departments and things like that. I thought, you know what, put it in the training. So when you do have that call, you do well. And it's funny you said that, Ben, because, you know, teaching puts a different light on you. Um, you know, teaching people kind of look at you like if you make a mistake, it's a much bigger deal. Um, and I you know, I know I, teaching hand line pulling is something I do a lot. And every now and then, I screw it up. You know, and, and luckily it's less and less and less all the time. But every now and then, and I, I remember it was Ocean City. I think Trevor, I think you were still there. I was teaching hand line pulls. I, we do it what four weeks in a row, and we do it over and over and over again. And I was showing demoing a stretch of a hand line, and it came out like spaghetti. It was an absolute mess. It was one of those unfixable messes, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> We've all probably seen them on fire ground. So, um, and what can you say? But you know what? I messed that up, and that, and I think that's that's part of the 
part of what fire service is, is you not only is it as good as your last call, but your next call is only as good as troubleshooting your last call. And saying, what did I do not quite right? What was good? You know, I mean, I've had times where, where I struggled and, and worked in fires to get my gear on, which I get really mad with other people about. And so you go back and kind of, hey, man, what was wrong with that? What, what, was, what was holding me up and putting my gear on, you know? And it, oh, it was raining out. Well, that was an excuse. I didn't use an excuse. So why was that? Well, you know what? I had to switch to large gloves instead of medium gloves. Because medium gloves were comfortably when it's dry, but when it was wet, I couldn't get them on. And, uh, you know, you get, you get busted for that. Say, hey, uh, how long did it take you to get the gloves on, Lieutenant? <laughs> you know? But what you learn from it. You know, you don't, don't cower in the corner. Don't make excuses. I mean, you know, one thing that the fire department never run out of is excuses. Um, there's, a, there's a huge truck out back of every firehouse in this land. And it just has a plethora of excuses. So if you don't want to put it to work and you don't want to try to improve yourself, there's a big truck out back. Just go out there and grab you any kind of old excuse you can possibly get. Kind of so, um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's the gist of all of this. Is I think just that we just have to continually improve and continually review and kind of look at ourselves and so on and so forth. And yeah, I would bust up the thing. I mean, we joke around with a lot, a lot of people outside of the firehouse, but sometimes we give ourselves excuses too quick. And, you know, you need somebody to kind of bust on you a little bit, um, maybe just think about it a little bit. So, well, maybe it wasn't as just something that happened to me, maybe it had something to do with me. But, uh, and it's also good. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, I, we had a lot of really great conversations yesterday and on, on our shift, Bobby, and, um, you know, one of the things that I would say is, or that I that I would bring up is um, one of the, well, a couple of things. One is, I've really enjoyed being a paramedic and practicing every fourth day, um, and have and have had a number of calls where, like, we get through it, but then afterwards, you know, I'm riding, we're riding back into town, talking to my partner and saying, "What about this? What about that?" And you know, we're having that conversation to to kind of re rehash it and go over it and you know should we have done something different um you know we had a we had a priority call a couple weeks ago and you know we're still talking about that call you know should have done this differently should have done that differently um the qa person on our shift uh travis hearn i'll I'll throw his name out there um you know i'll get a text message after a call or the next shift after he's reviewing them and you know i give him a hard time when he when he sends me a message that says hey i got a qa thing for you I was like, oh, come on, man, you know, but, you know, then I give him a call and we talk about the the call that he's talking about. And, you know, I, I call him to say, hey, you know what, what specifically do you need? I'll go fix it right now. Um, you know, and, and imagine the phone call taking, you know, a minute and we end up on the phone for 15 minutes talking about the call, talking about, you know, looking at the EKGs, all this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed that aspect of, of all of this and coming to shift and, you know, learning as much as I can, um, throughout all of that. And then the, the last thing we're going to give Bobby a little bit more praise. Um, he's not gonna be able to get back in the house, uh, cause his head's going to be so big. But one of the things that, that he's talked about a lot on the, on the time that we've worked together is be able to do everything yourself. Um, so, you know, Trevor was talking about the fire that they had earlier, 
uh, with minimum staffing. And, and most places have minimum staffing. So it's a driver, an officer, and, and a firefighter. Um, so you have to be able to, to do what you need to do with that, that limited personnel. Um, you know, we're not all the FDNY where we can get off the engine with six people and trample the fire out. Um, you know, sometimes you have to make it work with a driver and an officer or driver, officer and firefighter. Um, so one of the things Bobby's been saying is, you know, make sure you can pull the line and stretch it by yourself and effectively make sure you can throw the ladder and place it and climb it effectively by yourself. Um, so, um, that's one of the things that, um, I know I need to start working on more. Um, we've been pretty busy and, um, with calls for, and all that kind of stuff. We're, we're coming into our slower season, um, in the next month or so where we'll be able to, to do a little bit more of that. But, you know, that's one of the things that's on my mind of like, all right, well, if I'm the guy in the back, I know Bobby's going to make his, his 360 do and do that. Our driver's getting that ready. You know, I need to be able to stress the line and do that correctly by myself. You know, and then if we have someone extra, that's great. But if not, then I know it's going to be done correctly. And before Bobby comes back from his 360. So, um, that's something, again, I've really enjoyed about coming full time and, and being there more to do that. So, and, and Ben, that's one of the things that I appreciate about people like yourself and Bobby. And you know, we have several other of our you know, friends, brothers and sisters and colleagues who are the same way is they're they're solution based. They're not problem focused. They're solution based and they're also mission focused. So, you know, the, the way that we get to achieving the mission might be a little different from a shift, B shift, C shift, D shift. And I'm not advocating running, you know, four miniature fire departments in, in one, but we might have a little bit different Avenue to get there, but if it's safe, effective, and we get the job done, then we, we need to look at that successfully and also share that information because then that, that becomes another tool in the toolbox for some other folks. We don't get that functional fixedness where we put the horse blinders on and you know, forget about the overall mission. And uh, I saw it the other night. It's and you, Bobby, you remember this when we were doing some acquired structure training for uh, safety and survival, where we're and this is gosh some years ago, some apartment complex on Twenty Something Street, and you know, we gave them the scenario. They were on the second floor. Conditions became untenable. Get out! Get out! Get out! And we had people lining up at a window like lemmings jumping off a rock, which I've come to uh, find out now that's really not true. I guess they don't line up, but, you know, anyway, um, another story, another time. But, you know, we had these people lining up to do tool bailouts where there was three or four windows in this one general area, and they could have gone to a ladder truck that was uh, positioned out of, outside of one window. They could have gone to a ground ladder that was positioned, but instead – they got that functional fix in this. And we were doing some rope stretches the other night, uh, doing some high-rise training and talking about the mid-rises and walk-ups and you know, some of the other options. And not to confuse some of these folks, but it's a, you know, every, everything's an option. You, know, you, you have to be able to take the scenario at hand and be able to adapt to it. And, of course, when they were doing a rope stretch, they, they sent down a carabiner or on a rope. And they were just trying to, of course, some of them were doing the Firefighter 2 skills card, doing a you know, a uh, clove hitch with a triple Lindy and a twist and a double backflip and a, and a, uh, you know, all this other stuff. It's like, stop. You know, you, not. You, know, you, you already got your, you already got your firefighter too. You're good. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, this, I'm not assessing your ability to go through the entire family of knots. I need you to get that line up there, but they got so functionally fixed because the guy uh, on the end of his rope had a triple action carabiner. 
So you had to pull down, you had to twist, and then you had to pull back. And I make, you know, you know how I am with that stuff. You know, if you're not doing with the fire gloves on, you know, of course, because they're under fire conditions. Well, they were getting so messed up. I said, like, hold on, let me show you a little quick trick. If you take the rope and just kind of tuck it through and, and make a loop out of it, just like a dog leash or a lasso. But I said, you know, your problem is that you're a firefighter. You're not going to let that carabiner defeat you, even if it takes you 20 minutes to unclip that damn thing. And I said, that's great. I, you know, I appreciate that motivation and that drive. But you know, we have to look at the mission and then we can come back. I said, because you know, if you stay up all night at the firehouse, making sure you can articulate that uh, or activate that uh, carabiner with your gloves on, more power to you. You know, I, I think you're doing a great job, but don't waste the time on the fire ground. I said, but that's our mindset as firefighters that, damn it, this isn't going to defeat me. And we've all done it. We've sat there and beat the living dog crap out of a door with an axe and a halligan bar when we could have gone down three feet to a section of drywall and probably breached through and gotten into the same area. Um, because, damn it, that door is not going to defeat me. So we do get that functional fixedness from time to time. And that's where that first five minutes that you're talking about, Ben, is so critical because sometimes we will waste time unbeknownst to us thinking that we're making progress, but sometimes we'll waste it ourselves. Yep. Yep. Um, so let's, let's get a little bit more into the first in first five um, and talk about some terminology that we use with our, with our size ups. Um, and one of the things that we use a lot is the single family dwellings. Um, so, we talk about single family dwellings and it's, it, you know, you go on scene, you know, engine one's on the scene, nothing showing from a single family dwelling. Well, what, that doesn't really paint the picture. Um, and the blue card program, they, they have a, they have assigned uh, different sizes. Um, so that way, and it's, it's standardized. So that way, if you say it's a small, a medium, a large, that you automatically know what size that is. But, um, you know, another thing that you can do is, is talk about the square footage. I can tell you that, um, you know, I, I, I could tell you square footage. I can't tell you if it would be right. Um, one of the things that I would try to do mentally is compare it to what my house is. I know my house is about 2,000 square feet. So where does this house compare to that? Um, so some of the, the things that... Um, Mine is much smaller, Ben. <laughs> well, that... I think they're counting the attic, which I don't use. So, um, so from from our program, which we're going to throw up here. And and hey, hey Ben, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. All right, I, I just got to get on my my soapbox um, really really quickly, and I do realize I, I saw our brother Rat was on earlier, and if he were to get on a soapbox, I think OSHA would make him have fall protection. But that's another story. Depends but, how big the soapbox is. I'm, I'm talking standard garden variety soapbox, but um, yes. And I know we can split hairs and people have different nomenclature in different parts of the country. But one of the things that's always bothered me about the term single family dwelling is to your point, Ben, it doesn't paint a good picture. And if I'm coming in as battalion chief, as an instant commander, you know, whatever stuff you have on your collar or your front piece, I'm trying to get a picture in my head. And yes, I should probably have a pretty good idea of the structures in that particular area, that neighborhood, whatever the case might be. But, you know, when, when people say single family dwelling and you see the picture on the screen, well, that's a very common, let's say probably 1100 square foot, nine to 1100 square foot uh, private dwelling that exists in most of our areas. And if you were to ask generally any firefighter with, let's even say minimal experience, to paint me a picture of the layout, the floor plan of that house, 
they're probably going to say, okay, well, there's your front door. Um, you got a bedroom to the right, second bedroom to the right, across the hallway in the back. There's probably a third bedroom or a guest room uh, in the middle of the hallway to back on the right-hand side. There's a bathroom. Straight back is a kitchen. To the left where that bay window is is a living room or a family room. And then you you have a little laundry room off to the uh, off to the ass end of the uh, the bathrooms, and that would be a very very probably accurate picture of that house if you've never been in it whatsoever. Um, well, so anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Ben. Yeah, I know you want to scroll through this, but that's You're just good. kind of my thing. You're good. Go ahead, take your time. No, but we'll say okay, this is a single family dwelling, which I would not poke anyone in the eye uh, whatsoever if they say okay, well. Uh, Engine four is on location. We have a single story wood frame, uh, single family dwelling, fire shown on the alpha side, and you know the, the rest of your brief initial report. Well, that's all well and good, but we all well we all know as well, and especially during different times, when we say single family, we're usually thinking about the nuclear family that might be living in a structure like that. So you might be thinking a retired couple, uh, a younger couple with a kid or two, whatever the case is. You could have multiple families living in there, but because they don't have multiple electric meters or uh, and there's no cars in this driveway. And we've been we've been through this many, many, many times. Some people don't um, have vehicles. Some people uh, there's uh, they're one vehicle family. Uh, we found motorcycles and scooters out back. Um, they might take public transit. So, you know, that's that's one of the things where we arrive as that first new engine company with three people. One person's already uh, kind of committed to being the the pump operator, throwing ladders on the exterior. They might be able to join the crew. You got your officer running to go do your 360, and you have your firefighter who's humping the line to the front door. So there's a lot of things that need to get accomplished in a short period of time. And if we go in there, and there's more than that single family, or that single family is more than mom, dad, and you know kid and dog, we're already overwhelmed. And this is this is only a you know nine to eleven hundred square foot place. So I'll uh, I'll I'll kind of taper off there until you get to the next part, Ben. All right. All right. <clears throat> Same thing here. Um, this is a single family dwelling. So we're talking about probably a twenty three to twenty six hundred square foot uh, structure, wood frame, of course, in that area of the country, with an attached garage. Do we know if anyone's living in that garage? Is that an actual vehicle garage? Is it a utility area? Or has that been made into a apartment? And I can tell you, when I first moved down here to South Florida, I lived in something that looked just like that garage, uh, but it was my domicile. It was attached to uh, you know another, another structure. So again, this is a single family dwelling, but there's a lot more. And uh, Ben, can you go back just for one, please, to the, uh, the single story? I guarantee if a firefighter, I shouldn't say guarantee it, but if a firefighter gets in this structure here and something goes wrong, they can probably legitimately crawl eight to 12 feet in any given direction and find an exit to the exterior, usually. So you know, th if things do go from sugar to shit, there's a reasonable chance that you can find an exit to the outside. And Ben, if you go forward for a second to that uh, two and a half story, please. This is like my old house. It's kind of similar. This is nicer, though, but uh, to my old house at Ocean City. If you go down that entire left wall of the house, there's not a single access to the outside. And you're talking probably 25, 30 feet. So, again, 
there, you know, you have stairs in here. You have, um, you know, you could have a sunk, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a sunken living room. There's all sorts of different construction features, but here you might actually crawl 20, 25, 30, 35 feet on a wall and not be able to find an exit to the outside if conditions become untenable. Again, you've called in as that first in officer and said, we're on the scene, two and a half story wood frame, single family dwelling. And you are correct. This is a single family dwelling. Only one family lives there. Um, go to the next one, please, man. Okay, this is a single family dwelling. Now, granted, um, I had to poke my head around the corner of the iron gate to take this picture and um, was able to live to tell about it. But same thing here, this is a single family dwelling and at the time it was in a unhydrated area. So you know, if you look at that first structure, that, that 900, 1100 square foot um, bungalow or cottage, and you look at this, I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a, um, I'm not a builder, but there's a hell of a lot more sticks that were taken to you to build this house than there were the first one. And any, any first in officer who says this is a single family dwelling is correct. They are 110% correct, but it's completely different. The space is different. And just like you said, Ben, um, you know, is it a small private dwelling, medium, large, or is a, is it a BFH like this one is? So, you know, you have to be able to look and say, paint that picture and you might have nomenclature in your department. But again, if we if we go back because single family dwelling sounds cool on the radio, it doesn't paint a really accurate picture. One family lives in this place. Now, we could probably put 16 families in a place like this and have room left over. Um, and that doesn't include the gardener, the butler, everybody else. But that's kind of a little bit of my thing. And just like I, I've heard some people on the radio, too, will go to a, let's say, a, uh, a multifamily dwelling. And they'll say, oh, we're on the scene. we got a three-story uh, masonry condo. Well, condo is a real estate term. I don't care who takes care of the mulch and paints the shutters. That's, that's meaningless. Um, you know, is, is it a multifamily dwelling? Is it a mixed occupancy? I know some people like the type one, type two, type three. I personally like to shy away from that because at three o'clock in the morning, um, you know, for me to count to five is a different story, let alone to accurately depict uh, what type of structure it is. And then we have a lot of those buildings too, like a masonry clad frame, for example. You look at a building that looks like it's a masonry building, but if you saw it being built, you know it's a facade wall or it's just tied in uh, with a masonry facade, but it's actually a frame structure. So. Um, I'm going to get off my soapbox there um, about the single family dwellings. The whole point behind this is regardless of what system you use, whether it's blue card, small, medium, large, um, McMansion, BFH, I don't care what it is, be consistent, but be able to paint that accurate picture. Because if I'm thinking that it's a private dwelling out where that last one was, that, that humongous place, there's places right down the road that look like the first one in that same neighborhood. And I'm not, I don't know what the address is off the top of my head. So I'm thinking, okay, no big deal. You know, two engines, a, a truck, a heavy rescue, a paramedic unit, battalion, we're good. Oh, no, no, no. Now we, now we have to get uh, tankers in here. Now we have to, you know, strike additional alarms because of the sheer size of this place. And that first or second due company is going to be overwhelmed right off the bat. And, you know, that's one of those, you know, pack a lunch and stay for the day type of places. So, um, yeah, Bobby and Ben, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, good, bad, and different with some of that nomenclature. And again, not splitting hairs, but that's just a little bit of my angst with the whole 
single family dwelling nomenclature? Um, well, I actually, and this is, this is a cool thing about this because it's just sitting around the firehouse talking. Um, I actually have a little bit of a different thought process about the types. I actually use the types on all my size ups. And uh, we, we were fortunate enough to have uh, uh, Mike Lombardo, a retired uh, fire commissioner from uh, Buffalo, work with us and help us train for a, a few years and live down. We were blessed to have him live down years. And he, he convinced me to do that, not because of the type number, which doesn't really matter, but to think about the construction before you attack it. And so, you know, when I look at this, the, the, you know, when I say a type one fire resistant structure, you can say fire resistant structure, at least you don't have to say it, but as long as you're thinking in your head, what's, what's the characteristics of it? It's like an oven, but it probably won't fall on you. Um, you're not breaching any walls, um, to the outside of the place, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, but I appreciate the fact that remembering those numbers and stuff at three in the morning is probably not going to happen, you know, and it's just, it's, you know, that's, that's kind of it. And I think one of the things that with fire service and what we do with our size up and even this class that you put together, Trevor, you know, you have to ask yourself, what's different today? Everything. So you guys remember the size up stuff. Hey, daytime, nobody's home. What about COVID? Right? Daytime, the kids are in school, you know? So everything's kind of different. I mean, I know in our particular area here at the beach, uh, we have had just an influx of tens of thousands of people um, because they're retiring down here because they can quote work online. So that second house that you showed, I would expect to find a dining room to your right. But nowadays with people trying to get healthy and CrossFit and things like that, it could very well be a gym with a bunch of dumbbells to fall on you when you run in there, thinking it's a dining room. Or it could be a home office that somebody set up. Or it could be anything. Um, you know, so it's crazy that I look at your program and I think about how things are so different today, just in how people occupy their houses and just in what they're doing inside their houses and things like that. And so we got to kind of always run to keep up. We always got to kind of think about, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's kind of happening different, but I'm a huge fan of every single fire ground I walk up to, I size it up. And what do I mean by sizing it up? You know, when you say you're first and five, what are you sizing up? Well, what is big windows? Big windows ain't bedrooms, you know? So big, big windows are usually living rooms, right? Well, what do you always have connected to your living rooms nowadays? It's all open concept. There's a kitchen. You know, uh, you may not even have a dining room in these new houses anymore and things like that, right? But wherever all that stuff is, where's the bedrooms and the other part of the house? So if it's a single-story house and I see big windows on the left, I would expect to find bedrooms on the right, you know, in, in a typical house like that. Um, you know, small windows usually mean what? They mean there's a, it's a utility room, it's a laundry room, it's a, a bathroom, it's something like that, you know? Um, and And... So you can kind of cheat. I call it cheating the building. You know, when you, you don't want to do a 360, that's fine. But what if you walk around to do a 360 and you find out there's a set of exterior steps that goes up and you're trying to do banner search? You know, or you do a 360, you find out the walkout basement. And the basement has a bunch of fire in it before your guys go to the front door. So you, you may have times where you can't do a 360. Listen, we have big, long buildings in Ocean City where you just can't do it. You know, you got... Row rooms, you got townhouses, you got stuff like that where you just physically can't do it. But if you don't do it, you don't get that third picture. I think that's 
you know, part of what Trevor and I talk a lot about this first at five is you don't, you may not be able to do certain things, but when you don't do certain things, you don't get certain information. And so, you know, I look at everything and say size up. And, and the last point I'll give to you, Trevor, on that and to everybody is, let's say you go to a house and you show a two-story house and you, there's a door in the middle like you would expect. You see large windows on the right side of the house and maybe regular size windows on the left, you know, and you're like, um, and, and so then you have a second story and you're like, that's probably bedrooms. I mean, typically that's what we do with bedrooms and things like that, right? And you go, okay. You know, so I'm good to go. So let's say you are on a truck company and you want to do Venom search. So you look up there, and I just told you the size of the windows, right? And you look up there, and they're all the same size windows, and you're like, okay, cool. And you start going to Venom search. Well, then you get to that middle window that's the same size, and it just happens to be over those, that entry door. What could that window be? Well, it could be an opening the stupid little thing that people put little trinkets up on and fall rack to the first floor. You know, that's kind of one of those examples. So even though you're cheating the building where you're 360, even though you're cheating the building by kind of figuring out how it's laid out, um, you also have to do your due diligence with sounding before you go through a window, sounding the floor before you go in. We've been talking a lot about up here. We've had a lot of people going through floors lately, a lot. Way too many. And it's this parallel cord trust crap they're putting out there. It's everywhere. All these developments are building with this stuff, and it just has no strength to it when it has fire underneath of it and guys are falling through. Um, rest is soul. We had just lost a guy in Frederick, Maryland uh, from that, that exact thing. That that floor gave way, and he kind of went down, and, and unfortunately he didn't make it. So I think there's a combination of what Trevor and I are talking about, about doing your sizing that thing up, doing your 360, but then also doing your due diligence. I mean, I, I, I can be honest with you, I slowed down doing my hose line advancements, and I really do try to sound the floor first. You know, if it feels solid, you can move for a little bit, but then when you get to the bottom stair, check it again. Check the middle of the stair, check the top of the stairs, those types of things. But, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's a constant, we're, we're always reimagining ourselves, you know, what we need to do and kind of from there. So you gotta got to take what this, program tells you and you got to grow from that and say okay well what is the other things that we have to do so just some of my thoughts about it but i I think uh you know just looking at a building uh, and the biggest thing i could say is slow down slow down with your thought process if you can get it if you can get your chauffeur to slow down for that last block it's worth a million dollars in size up if they fly in there and slam the brakes on you can hardly see your three sides you're probably going to miss a hydrant, you know, and then we need to have that time to kind of absorb what is this thing, you know, what what type of house is it? How much is it really on fire? How much fire is in there? What does it look like? You know, and all, there's a lot of stuff that that poor officer has to figure out. And if you're a super aggressive driver, you give him no chance. You just give him no chance. You're on the third side where you see it. So that's just some of my thoughts, man. And, and Bobby, you're right. It's almost like uh, same as positioning the the truck is you know the the white hat might say I want you to take side A, but getting out and taking that ten seconds to figure out exactly where you need to be saves so much time and effort, makes you so much more functional on the fire ground. I'm going back to a, a comment I see Esther put up. So you know, if the first crew can't accomplish the 360, you must assign a crew to do it, and that goes back to that mission based philosophy because. If, if we have priorities on the fire ground, not so much SOP based, but mission based and priority based, 
And if we can't accomplish it, that that priority is still there. It still needs to be accomplished and somebody needs to take up that slack. Um, it doesn't mean that we juggle all these balls in the air and we drop one and it's okay. It's someone else has to pick it up and we have to, just like if, if we don't lay out from a hydrant for whatever reason, then we didn't take our, we didn't uh, establish a primary water source. And we might have a very good reason not to have done that, but we need to articulate that. That's part of our, our mission-based process. And, um, you know, Bobby, I, I agree with you. And it kind of goes back even to remember when we had the uh, financial crash back in what, 2000, 2008, I guess it was. And we had people who lost their homes and were living in their businesses. And I still remember vividly uh, going to an industrial area um, over in box area six that, you know, zero dark 30 in the morning, we're going into a, a hair salon that's in an industrial park. And you know, we're just going through the building and we find a guy who is living in there because he lost his house. He worked in the hair salon that his mom owned and he left a hot plate on. I mean, you're not thinking that it's going to be an occupied structure at that time in the morning other than maybe a, a cleaning crew, something like that, if it's a larger thing. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's uh, you know, essential, Bobby. What you're saying is be adaptable to the times that we're living in, especially. I mean, your your point with COVID is so well taken that you know people are really uh occupying their domiciles in non-traditional hours and some people have you given up automobiles or they've sold the and so you 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 never know and just like you said bobby that size up is so critical and so important and you have to adapt not only to the conditions that you're finding and the potential of who may or may not be home but also let's be very blunt about this too you have to look at your crew and who's available as well. I mean, if all stations are in and that fire happens to occur at just the right time when you have all the resources arriving like they're supposed to, that's a good day for us. But there's other times when you might have the, it, it's you and somebody who's taken an overtime shift who normally doesn't work with you and your crew. So the cadence isn't there as it normally would be. And then you have Nikki new guy on your, on your shift who, is just trying to do what they can, but they need a lot of guidance and a lot of uh, you know, direct supervision. So well, my name is Ben. That's yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, like, okay, let's just call the guy Ben. But um, you know, I mean, but that that might actually alter your strategy and tactics a little bit, not because you're you're trying to do something different, but you understand the capabilities and limitations of what you have currently on that particular call. And I think that's something that needs to be factored in anytime that you're looking at that first five minutes. If you have that A-team crew and you've got, you know, another crew right on their tail that's really dialed in, you're, I mean, you're going to be able to accomplish a lot of those missions and a lot of those priorities a lot sooner than if you're by yourself for several minutes because everyone else is busy and you just might not have the uh, that cohesiveness of the crew because it's not a normal crew for you. So I think um, that and then, uh, yeah, Ben, I know you wanted to get a little bit because we're kind of running towards the end. Um, you know, about some of the tactics. And one of, one of the things I talk about, too, is, uh, Bobby, I, I know you're big into this, is really pre-planning and training. And it's not so much trying to write everything down to put in, in your database. That's great. But give an example. You might have a, let's say you have a high rise and they may or may not allow you or appreciate the fact that you're going to uh, go up in their high rise and train and stretch hose down their freshly carpeted uh, hallway. Well, on, on our engines where I, where I work, I give them those uh, measuring wheels, like the utility wheels. And if they ever, guess what? 
they can click it right on out. And I tell them, I said, guess what? 200 feet of hose is the same length as 200 feet of rope. You know, it's not the same. You're not getting the reps and sets of pulling the hose line. But if you're trying to figure out your stretch, then take that rope bag down the hallway. You know, that's something that we can put together pretty quickly, if, especially if we're not out of service for training or whatever else. Or take that measuring wheel. And I can tell you, I'm very proud of the fact that my crews can tell me what's not going to be serviced by those pre-connects because we get so fixed on what we can service, which is probably about 95% of our first due, give or take, um, with our pre-connected hand lines, but we don't think about stretch estimation. And I, I'm going to be a little bit, um, I want to say crass about this. I want, I want uh, Ben to show some of the buildings, but you know, if, if you want, if you want a true measure of how well your people can estimate distances and, and stretches, go in the bathroom of the firehouse. And if, if they're falling short of the urinal, obviously they cannot do a distance estimation very well. And I actually, I actually have a formula for it. Um, it's the perceived performance, the PP. And if you divide that um, by the potential obvious outcome, the poo, then you'll actually, you'll actually get the, uh, you know, the true predictabilities, the TP. So I know that's, you know, kind of goofy, but at the same time, I mean, you'll, you'll see that equation a little bit. It's like, hold on a minute. If, if you can't estimate where that cross lay is going to reach the overwhelming majority of the time and not be surprised, you've got to go out and train. And, you know, I, I kind of say that tongue in cheek to look in the firehouse because there's some people that obviously, you know, they, they cannot figure out the, uh, you know, reach and distance for a, for a stream in the urinal, let alone on the fire ground. So go out there, look at some of the things. And Ben, if you don't mind, uh, could you put up that one building for me, the one on Dorchester? Here's a classic example. Um, downtown building, Ocean City. You see the double yellow line in the middle of the street. You see the parking spaces delineated out front. And the offset of the structure is mere feet on the other side of the sidewalk. So uh, when we talk about you know estimating that first length coming off the engine and the, the first 50 feet to get to the door, we're going to have to manage some hose lines. So we look at this, and typically, uh, as tight as the structures are, especially in that area of the city, we look and go, okay, here's a two and a half, maybe we'll call it three story wood frame structure, older structure. Um, you know, our cross lay should have no problem reaching everywhere. As a matter of fact, we'll probably have extra to manage just because where the engine pulls up and, you know, for those folks who aren't familiar with this particular area, um, you know, it's, it's a tight street. So you're thinking to yourself, man, 200 feet is going to be more hose than what we can say grace over, not a problem. But then you start looking down the side of the structure, then if you would, you're looking down the Bravo side, that shows you a little bit. And then if you go, uh, Ben, show me the Delta side, please. Okay. So this is one contiguous structure all the way back. And I can tell you in no uncertain terms, and uh, Ben, if you don't mind being my cursor person for me, if you look at that um, second floor white balcony all the way back, just underneath where that chimney is, I can tell you in no uncertain terms that a 200 foot cross lay will stretch from the engine down, that, uh, down the side of that structure, up both flights of those stairs, in the door of the second floor apartment, and will be three feet short of getting in the back bedroom. And the reason I know that is because I screwed up and thought it was going to reach. And again, it was one of those things where like, wow, when you have to call for a backup line to go three more feet, they say baseball is a game of inches. Well, guess what? Firefighting is too. And, you know, so 
I messed that one up. I thought we, we would hit it with the uh, 200 feet. I was close, but not close enough. So that's where I really got into looking at these, um, you know, not relying on the pre-connects as much, but looking at positioning, looking at estimated stretches and being able to really calculate that uh, fairly accurately. And Bobby, I, I know you use this kind of as a, um, a little bit of a tool. I mean, you'll, you'll talk about like the length of a ladder truck as far as like a length of hose. And I've got guys in my department that, you know, they'll, they'll count paces or they use one of them drives tractor trailers um, in his off time. So he knows that the, the trailer is 52 or 53 feet long. And so that's how he kind of estimates what a length is. So whatever works for you, you know, please do it. But um, yeah, Ben, I'd like to hear from you and you and Bobby on that because, you know, stretching short once, you know, you can, you can chalk it up to experience, but if you, if you do it consistently, then you're probably, you know, you're, you're, you're that person leaving those uh, little piddle puddles on the floor. You're not going to believe this, Trevor, but we had a bedroom fire in that same building, but it was the second balcony. So the third balcony, our 200 were fine. Shut up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so talking about stretching, uh, we actually just did a, a training the other night um, in Salisbury uh, and I, like Bobby has mentioned, um, the length of the ladder truck is about 50 feet. Um, you know, if, if you roll it out and look, you're, you're right in that ballpark. So, um, that's one of the things that I told our folks at night. And the other thing I told them, I said, you know, what's the, what's the length of the sidewalk, um, in between the, the, the creases, you know, what's the length of, um, what's the width of a parking spot? What's the length, what's the depth of a parking spot? So know what those are ahead of time. So as you, as you're pulling up, you know, even if you're sitting in the back, you know, you can kind of see how far it is away from something. Um, know the, know the width of a road, you know, so if you're on the center line, you know, how much space do you have to get to the front? Um, so it's, it's just that kind of stuff. And I, I tell you, our folks, they loved the, the length of a ladder truck. I mean, that, that's what, what is more practical in the fire service um, than, than saying the length of a ladder truck and Kevin Belcher, if you're watching, I'm sorry, man, it, it's the best uh, comparison that, that we can, that I've heard. I know you're an engine guy from start to finish, but it works. Um, so um, that was, you know, that, that was something that, that when Bobby said that, I was like, holy shit, like talk about a light bulb going on. He's on a medical local right now. He'll get back to you just as soon as he's available. Okay. And before he takes the next one. <coughs> um, but, but that, that was, that was fantastic. You know, so that's something that I know that I've, I've always kind of struggled with as, as far as estimating my stretches, you know, in, in Salisbury, we were uh, traditionally a bumper line department. We had two, uh, low, two bumper lines that we could go and we could put in service incredibly quickly. Um, and now we've kind of transitioned one on the bumper and three off the back. Um, so it's, it's where, you know, the guys are, have made a, a great job transitioning to that ocean city. We go off the back a lot. Um, so it's, um, you know, just it's, it, you have to get used to what you have. Um, like Tre and Trevor has talked about, you know, um, stretching short on that one fire. The other thing that I would, I would give a little caution to is you don't want to overstretch consistently. Um, you know, if you always pull a 350 and you can get away with a 150, then you probably need to work on your estimation too. Because um, trying to manage the extra 200 feet in the front yard or wherever uh, can be difficult. 
And, and Ben, to that point, um, I know somewhere in that presentation, there was a picture of the uh, fire we had at the Wellington some years ago. And that was a stretch that we made from a cross leg going up an exterior fire escape and going down a third floor hallway, um, you know, very highly occupied building at the time. And, you know, we went in and did what we needed to do, knock the fire down. And of course, you know, we felt really, really good about ourselves. The only problem was looking at hindsight and again, not being critical, but just you know, thinking critically is if that fire had gone one more unit over, we wouldn't have had enough hose line to get there. So even though we were successful in what we did, we didn't we didn't plan ahead to say uh, to your point, Ben, exactly. I agree with you. You don't want to keep overstretching and have all this hose to manage either. But that was one of those things. There you go. Um, it, you know, when we went up the exterior stairwell, we were able to get up there. Um, you know, the engine was parked in the alleyway. And like I said, you know, things went very, very well on that. However, if that if that fire had been one more unit to the east or to screen right, in this case, we would have stretched short. So that would have been something that even though we were successful, when we asked for a backup line to be pulled, instead of pulling the same length backup line, we should have called for a uh, 350, not to overstretch, but for the fact that, you know, once we knew that we you know, had gone to the maximum of our capabilities, and if anything was outside of that, we would have needed uh, a different resource. So I think you, you have to be dynamic in everything that you do. And there's sometimes where your cross lay is going to be way too much to deal with. Um, and, you know, and that's where the hose management comes in. So you know, these are all the things we talk about that first five minutes is so important. Um, and it's not to play the what if game with every possible inevitability on the fire ground, but to say, okay, you know, downtown we have very small or uh, you know, very shallow offsets of our structures off of the street. Um, you know, midtown, little mix, north end, you know, you might be 15, 20, 30, 35, 50 feet back where the first coupling is actually going over the threshold of the door. Um, I mean, that's a, a fully stretched. So, you know, it, it really comes into, you know, knowing your area and you and kind of getting these things down. Like uh, most departments mark the midpoint of their hose lanes. And we, you know, we certainly do the same thing on our deuce and a half lines for high rise. We were doing rope stretches the other night. I said, you know, don't worry about feet, worry about lengths. And, you know, how many lengths is it going to take you to get from here to here, here to here, and you're going backwards and forwards. And that way they start estimating what they need, not only to get the job done on the fire floor with their nozzle bundle, but also if we had to uh, circumvent the standpipe and actually do a rope stretch or make our own, what would you need? And it was, they were amazed that they had more hose than what they than what they needed. Um, and it, it was successful. I mean, the stretch that they did, but when they looked at the midpoint, they go, holy crap, it only took 25 feet of hose to get to the third floor balcony of this uh, of this mid rise. Great. Now, you know. And so that, you know, that's to me, that's one of the neat things is where they can start really using whatever trick works for them to estimate. And uh, I mean, Bobby, you've been a great proponent of that. And I, again, I just like Ben, I think that the, uh, you know, the ladder truck trick is phenomenal, but whatever works for people. Um, and it's about shaving those seconds off too in those first five minutes because uh, you know it's whether it's bunking out getting your gear on uh quickly you're not going to make up time on the street but it's your efficiency once you get there uh and i've always been a big proponent of uh, you know checking your fire apparatus especially your scba and some of your components with your fire gloves on because 
once you go to that front door and you lay your nozzle down, then you take your gloves off and then you set them down, then you take your helmet off and then you, you, know, you, you put your hood on, you put your helmet back on, you, or I'm sorry, you, you put your mask on, then you put your hood on, then you put your helmet back on, then you put your little mittens back on versus being able to do all that stuff with the dexterity of your fire gloves on, you know, that might have shaved, you know, 12 seconds off of something. And then the additional time that you've practiced to know what to do if something goes wrong, that you don't focus on what, what went wrong, you, you turn and focus on the mission to say, okay, what do I need to do to accomplish the mission? Yes, the, the stretch of the hose line just went terribly wrong. Put that behind you. And, uh, you know, what, what am I going to do now? Am I going to try to untangle this? Am I going to pull a second line? Uh, if, and if that doesn't work, what's, you know, so it, it's that consistency of, of keep moving forward and having that, uh, that continuum, if you will, of options and people just don't get fixed in that one thing or they don't start getting pissed off because something didn't work and then everything just you know, falls to crap at that point. Trevor, I don't know if you can see the, the question on the screen from Claude. Uh, actually, it's from Esther. He, he put a, a second comment up, but um, on that fire, did you guys hit it with the aerial first, or did you just stretch down the hallway? No, uh, we did the stretch down the hallway, and that's one of the confusing things sometimes when you see fire ground photos. It, it only ca captures a fraction of a second in time. Uh, that was going to be, depending on the conditions on the third floor, this is a fully occupied building. Uh, with actually, we had a lot of the um, the foreign exchange students in the building uh, at, at that time in particular, but we were fortunate enough that that fire got knocked just prior to the aerial being in position. But they were positioning just in case we were we had difficulty getting into that area. So the short answer is it was uh, it was suppressed via a inch and three quarter handline but the area was being placed for suppression just in case you know, we had any issues or it got out of control. Gotcha. So is that a common attic across there? Yeah, it's a, it's a common cock loft. Um, and as a matter of fact, I believe if my memory serves me correctly, um, those cupolas that are on the roof are actually, I believe they were only decorative. They, they weren't actually functional. But there was a common cock loft up in the attic, um, and fortunately, that fire was actually was contained to the one unit. And this goes kind of back to Bobby's point. Um, you see, in between where the fire unit is and just to the left, you have the smaller window. And you know, I, that that's actually the bathroom window. There was um, they actually had a shared bathroom, I believe. Again, it's been so long, but it, as you as you kind of march down the structure, you can see the different size windows and. You know, to Bobby's point about um, about size up, and you all have seen this time and time again, and especially with uh, some of the, the like buildings here, they charge an arm and a leg for rent, and you might have twelve people living in a two bedroom apartment. Um, so that you know, there again, it just you know, we we get overwhelmed very very quickly in those first five minutes, but if we can get you know, at least some degree of you know getting people evacuated from the building, get some sort of fire suppression. Um, you know, regardless what, if it's interior, exterior, combination of the two, depending on conditions and the appropriate tactics at the time, uh, you know, you all especially, uh, or anybody who has multifamily dwellings is kind of living in this. And again, going back to Bobby's point, in this day and age, you have no idea how many people could be occupying, um, you know, that 900 square foot house. You, you could have a lot of people to begin with, but especially in this day and age, 
you might have multiple families in there. Um, but again, going back to looking at our basic size up things, are there kids toys in the front yard? Is there a wheelchair ramp? Do you see, um, you know, a, uh, handicapped or, or disabled placard on a vehicle out front that might tell you somebody inside has mobility issues. There's so many different things that we need to be cognizant of and just keep our head on a swivel. Cause next week, there could be something completely different that's going to challenge us even more than today, if you can believe it. Yep, absolutely. So that um, we're going to kind of wrap up here. That was just kind of a glimpse um, into the first in first five uh, program that, that we teach through strike the box. Um, it's a great program. Uh, Trevor came over, Jeez, it was probably 2013 or 14 uh, to Salisbury. Did it one night for us uh, at Station One. It was phenomenal. Um, so, and I, I know he's done it a couple other places. I think I think I went to one up in Millville uh, before that. So, uh, it's a great program. Um, so, I hope you guys enjoyed it. There was a great conversation going on between the the folks in the chat. So, if you guys have any questions uh, or anything you want to reach out, please let us know. Um, I think everybody that was commenting in there either has our contact information or, or we know them or, um, so if there's anything that you guys need, please, like I said, reach out to us. Um, let me kick it down to Bobby for some closing comments. Oh, sorry. I was late. <laughs> Fun times. It was a great conversation. Uh, I think that Claude has earned a, a future spot on the show because he's come up with like, I think he come up with six good points in a row. You just automatically get a spot on here. So, Claude, you got to set your time up accordingly. Uh, figure out what Thursday you're available for us, and uh, get, actually, you have our contact information, so you can let us know. Uh, no, it's been it's been been a great time, and, and listen, you know, we're all coming, you know, all back out and doing things again, and not all locked down from COVID anymore. Uh, get back out there, train, practice, do your thing. Uh, size up things and, and um, you know, most importantly, stay safe out there. And um, it's great talking to you guys. Thanks, Bobby. Trevor? Yes, sir. Um, ben, thanks for putting this together and kind of giving a little insight into the first in, first five. There's a ton of other things that we discuss uh, during that program. But one of the biggest uh, take home points, and I think between our, uh, you know, between, you know, Claude and Esther and Bloomy and Jarman and Rat and, uh, you know, Chief Black, all the people that are coming on tonight. Um, you know, I just see so so many that are out there and who have the experience behind them, uh, you know, merit all of them. So you know, it's really about you know, knowing your capabilities and limitations, being realistic in what you can and can't do, and trying to make the greatest impact for the greatest good um, within those first five minutes. And, you know, part of that is going back to, you know, Frank Brannigan's book about uh, building construction for the fire service, know your buildings. Um, we're not going to know everything about them. There's a lot of people do some midnight, midnight renovations. And, but by trying to pre-plan these things a little bit, knowing your stretches, but also just, you know, uh, Bobby, I know you're big into this too, is time training. Uh, you know, there's some crews that are going to get things done quickly. There's other that others that might operate at the speed of smell, not because they're bad. They just need the extra reps and sets. So, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, take the time to train and be very honest with yourself, be honest with your crews and, you know, uh, assess your capabilities and limitations and always try to set that next goal realistically to say, okay, 
if we're 10 seconds faster stretching that line next time and getting water on the fire and we don't have kinks and you know things went well it's it's success but uh you know just remember who we're there for and you know who we're trying to uh you know who we're trying to get down the hallway to and what we're what we're trying to do and if you get that fire out 90 some percent of your problems are going to go away so um you know please 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 you know keep training and um you know reach out to some of the people we have uh, like bobby said some great conversation and these are all leaders in our industry that are uh, are tuning in and commenting. I mean, these these folks they've they've been there, they see it, and they still have the passion, even though they've been at this for a long time. So, um, you know, with that, thank you very much. And uh, Bobby, I agree with you. I think we ought to get old Claude on here, and uh, you know, we we can talk about some of that you know weird Canadian beer he drinks, and then uh, some fire tactics at the same time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we can make that work out. Um, so, again, thanks for everybody for joining. Thanks, Bobby and Trevor. It's always fun catching up and getting to chat with you guys. Um, so one last before we head out. Cheers. If you guys do want to catch up with Strike the Box, there are information scrolling across the bottom. So there's our website, Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, email, phone, whatever you, whatever it is. It's, I think it's going across the bottom. So if you guys have questions or comments, like I said, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, we have talked to uh, retired Captain Mike Dugan from the FDNY, um, and and we're gonna we're trying to set something up to get him on here. Uh, Claude, sounds like you're coming back. Um, maybe we can get you and Esther at the same time. Um, that was that was a great conversation with with Esther. So it'd be fun to have you guys back on. So a lot of great stuff coming from Strike the Box Training. Again, we're gonna try and do uh, a special guest. And alternate that with, um, you know, just an insight to some of our classes. So keep paying attention, keep watching us. And uh, we truly appreciate the support and um, everybody tuning in to, to see what we have to say. And thank you guys again for your um, your comments. It was a great discussion in the comments tonight. Um, so thank you. Have a great night and stay safe. <laughs>